testing. All right, very good. Good evening. Nice, nice to have you here tonight. Now, I know we've come off the high of night after night and special music and special features, but I want to assure you the sessions we're going to do right now may render an even greater benefit because it's going to be more of a teaching format and you're going to dig in and uh, discover along the way. Now, I know tonight you're going to learn some new things. And how do I know that? Is because as I was going over this with Pastor Joe, there was something that jumped out, or I should say he pointed out to me that I had not noticed before. So these Wednesday night presentations are going to be uh, a little bit more about dialogue. The Bible says two are better than one. So tonight, on the Wednesday nights, we're going to approach it with kind of a team teaching, a little bit of dialogue. We hope as the evenings go by that uh, every night you have a study guide to work off. So bring a pen. And we are going to uh, experience, I think, a better working knowledge of the Bible. So I was hitting the themes last week, and very much we were in the Bible. It was a lot more of a preaching format, and it was not as much of a teaching format. But you want to become comfortable with this. You want to know where it's at in your Bible. You ought to make some notes in your Bible and uh, link some text together. And as I encouraged uh, at some point in time, I don't know if it was during the meetings or not, but even if you just had a few different colors of pencil, and in the fly leaf of your Bible, the inside cover, uh, if you want to talk about the state of the dead, write down a text to start with and, and color it. Do a little highlighting on it, and it'll show you where the next text is. And when you get there, highlight it in the same color, and write in the margin of your Bible where the next text is. And this is how you sharpen your sword. And with a sharp sword, you can cut through error. I want to tell you, it really, really matters that uh, you familiarize yourself with these truths. The Bible says study to show yourself approved. So being here tonight will be part of that. I encourage you to invite other people to come. Now, next Wednesday night, we're going to approach it just a little bit different. I want to give you a special invitation. Tomorrow morning, we're going to set up our 36-foot-tall redwood statue of Daniel out in front of the church here. We're going to set it on the grass. We appreciate Andrews University. is going to loan us some mats to drive across so we damage our yard the least amount as possible. But we're going to set that up. The owner, or I should say the manager of uh, this 36-foot-tall carved image of Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to be in Benton Harbor tonight where the image is. He's already been there, and tomorrow he's going to be here and he's going to do some touch-up. There's little places where it needs a little bit of touch-up. And so before the winter comes, they want to make sure the cracks are filled and everything's taken care of on the statue. So we'll set that up tomorrow. Invite your friends. What's happening not this weekend, but next weekend, the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th, is there's going to be a special focus on probably the most difficult chapter in the book of Daniel, which is Daniel chapter 11. Now, I want to explain to you how the Daniel works. We went through Daniel and we saw the four metals and the divided feet and the ten toes. Every chapter in the book of Daniel gets more explicit about the time of the end. Now, some of them are stories and some of them are prophecies. By the time you get to Daniel chapter 11, we're going to look at Daniel 7 tonight. By the time you get to Daniel chapter 11, there's lots of detail. And the last five verses of the book of Daniel chapter 11 do not seem yet to have an authoritative interpretation. Now, most of the book of Daniel, Daniel is well understood, but Daniel 11's not. And sometimes when we go to talking about Daniel 11, people are intimidated and put off because of all the detail. Next Wednesday night, we're going to do a primer. We're going to try to get people ready for what Sabbath uh, October 19 is going to be about because all day long, we're going to be talking about issues with Daniel 11. Now, I want to tell you, when Bible prophecy was understood properly, some amazing things happened in the country and the world. And if we can get to where we really sense God's Spirit showing us how Daniel 11 should be interpreted, something you need to know is that on Thursday and Friday preceding the Sabbath, so the 17th and the 18th, there will be uh, scholars and evangelists and pastors and lay people that have gathered here in this room. We're going to be attempting to live stream it so anybody around the world could watch, but they're going to be doing some very in-depth study. Now, if you remember in Daniel chapter 9, when he didn't understand that 2300-day prophecy, what did he do? 
Did he say, well, I got to get more books out and study this? Well, he might have done that. But what the Bible says he did was he got down and he prayed. And I want to tell you, as these scholars come together, we have, I think, four prayer sessions built into the two days before Sabbath. So Thursday and Friday. We're not depending just on high-powered intelligence here. We are looking for God to bless us. Everybody that wants to is welcome to come on Thursday and Friday. There is no charge. Uh, if you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, that's because you probably will be. But you don't have to be put off by that. Every time you come to one of these things, if you just pick up a few more things, it's you building. Put another brick in the wall. So that's what next Wednesday night will be about. We'll deviate a little bit from the Unsealing Daniel format like we're going to do tonight. But I encourage you to come. Bring your friends. There are things in Bible prophecy yet not only to be discovered, but to be understood. All right, Pastor Joe, why don't you come up and let's look at our topic tonight. Pastor Joe Reeves, you met him just briefly on a few of the evenings last, uh, last week on our journey on uh, Jesus on prophecy. And he is uh, an associate here in this church, great partner to work with, and a student of the Word and an uh, expositor of Bible prophecy, a teacher of Bible prophecy. And tonight, Pastor Joe, we're going to tackle kind of a difficult subject. Yep, yeah. we are. So uh, glad to be with you here this evening and to join the stage with Pastor Ron. We don't often do a format where we uh, team up, and that's going to be kind of fun. But most of all, what excites me is getting into prophecy again this evening. You know, God is infinite, and we're not. We're finite. And the distance between the infinite and the finite, there's an infinite distance. How do we get to where God is? It would take somebody like Jesus to build that bridge, and prophecy helps us see the mind of God and the heart of God. There's things when you, if you're willing to open up your heart tonight, as we study from prophecy, to see the heart of God, to feel it, and to see the mind of God. The Bible is still changing people's lives, still turning people around, people of all ages. It defined me when I was a young person and still is. And uh, this can turn you around here tonight too. So let's open up our hearts as we Look at Bible prophecy. See, now, you told me this morning a story about mm-hmm. somebody when you were sharing on this topic. Yeah, yeah. And this, is a, this could be a difficult topic. I mean, we have people watching online, but they sat almost in the front row, mm-hmm. and they were really touched. Yeah, that, that's the first time I preached on this topic when I was, I think, uh, 20 years old in Wisconsin. And uh, the topic we're looking at tonight isn't the lightest. There's parts of it that are heavy. And as I was preaching it the first time, of course, I was quite nervous. And um, second row up, somebody was there, and I could see his face turning red. I could see the tears coming. I was in the middle of my message. And I just kept explaining the word and, and opening it up. And when I was done with that message, I went out of the sanctuary and greeted people. And Doug came up to me, and he said, Joe... So everything you said was true. All right. So, and he, he knew because of some of his experiences when he was well, younger. Well, okay. And so tonight, maybe as we come to the end, uh, we might revisit that. But we're heading down a road now. We're going to look at the little horn in Daniel 7 mm-hmm. and also the Antichrist. Not so much tonight, the Antichrist in Revelation 13. But they're very connected. We're going to see those clues coming together. Not an easy topic, but a very important one. So let's go. All right, so it's, it's from Daniel chapter 7, which is the second, second prophecy in the book of Daniel. So the first one is the metal image that we have looked at here on the screen and we have studied already. And uh, as we go into Daniel chapter 7, we see some of the antagonists against God's government. Now, I did ask my dad, some of you have met my father He drew this a few years ago for some teachings, some classes I was giving because of the misconceptions when we talk about the little horn or the Antichrist. And someone thinks, oh, it must be, I wonder if this would be the Antichrist that's up here preaching. No, his tail is not long enough. And um, when we think of the devil, sometimes we think of him coming with horns out of his head and uh, looking very evil and very scary. But when you begin to look at the stories in the Bible and the prophecies in the Bible, it's a little bit more sneaky than that. So you probably won't be able to identify the Antichrist by how long his tail is. The images in the Bible are given through representation. So there are beasts and there are horns, and we are going to look at those from the prophecy tonight. 
Although but, when, it, but when John the Revelator wrote, he's got two women. I two imagine, what? It, two women in the book of Revelation. Yes. And I imagine that they were both beautiful women, even though one was pure and one was defiled. So really, how long the tale is probably is a pretty good uh, illustration because he's not going to present himself as the great evil. No, and when he came to Jesus in the temptation, he didn't look that way either. Exactly. Satan can come appearing as an angel of light, and he can come as a great, very great person to any one of us. Very great good. teacher, preacher. Uh, this, this first slide I actually have up, and at the end of tonight's presentation, we're going to move a little bit quickly tonight. We have quite a bit of data to go through, but you will get this handout on the way out. It's on that table right there. And there are actually three passages from Scripture which give description to this power that antagonizes the, antagonizes the government of God and his character. One is Daniel chapter 7, which we will focus on tonight. One is Second Thessalonians 2, which we're actually going to begin with right here in the beginning. And the other is Revelation 13. When Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he gives some, some description to uh, this power that is going to present a great challenge for believers. And he says it's going to be a mystery, and he actually calls him, thank you, Jonathan. It looks like Jonathan is handing out your handouts right now, so you can have those right now. And um, you can take some notes on there as well if you'd like. Second Thessalonians, it says for in verse 7, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the mystery of lawlessness... And now he uses the phrase, the man of sin, back in verse 2, the son of perdition. But this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. But actually, I want to uh, back up to verse 3, where it uses this phrase, the son of perdition. The son of perdition is one of the titles used for this, for this power. The phrase son of perdition, do you recognize that phrase? Is that right? used anywhere else in the Bible? Son of perdition, tell us. Son of perdition. Jesus used that phrase. He had 12 of his own, the disciples. Do you remember which one was called the son of perdition? Say his name. Judas. Judas. All right, Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Judas, who ended up doing terrible damage to Jesus, and God used it, but he's the one that betrayed him, was Judas from the outside or from the inside circle? He was from the inside. This is going to give us a great clue to the little horn power and this power that antagonizes the character of God. It is going to come from the inside. The son of perdition. Inside where? Inside of Christianity. Okay. Naming the name of Jesus, having the Christian label. Now, this should be uh, alarming to us. Isn't it interesting, Pastor Ron, that Bible prophecy, it doesn't just show the, the bad of all the other religions. It shows the good and the bad even within the church. Jesus is the true witness. And when he speaks to the church, it's not always flattering, is no, it? No, it's pretty tough talk. So we should expect that he's willing to speak the truth in love about anyone who takes his name or any organization. Mm -hmm. So you can expect from Paul's writings about this man of sin, the son of perdition, that it's going to come from within and he will be revealed. I mentioned that there's parallels between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. You can see some of these parallels on the screen. In later sessions, we will go deeper into Revelation 13. Revelation 13 expands on Daniel 7. We'll stay mostly, but not entirely, in Daniel chapter 7 tonight. So this is, we'll begin with the text. But, but you brought something out to me earlier today, that the Greek word apostasia hmm. is used there in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So again, that dynamic of Judas, who did not stay true, Mm -hmm. So this man of perdition, this lawless one in First Thessalonians, it's talking about an apostasy. To be an apostate, you have to have at least at one time professed truth. Mm -hmm. That might be translated in your Bibles in that phrase is the falling away. 
But that means if you fall away, that means you were first part of it. So the word apostasy means that you were part of it, but you backslid or you fell away. You became corrupt. And of course, we see this in the church of Jesus' day. They were the covenant people. Jesus was there to confirm that covenant. But they slid so far away that God could come who was light, and they rejected him because they loved darkness. Mm -hmm. Do you think we should be in automatic security because... We are within the fold of God and part of the church? Well, not if we use your illustration of Judas or, in this case, of the church itself. Paul said there would be people would come out from amongst themselves, wolves in sheep's clothing. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't want to get us away before we we jump deep here into Daniel. Appreciate that. And, you know, when we studied Bible prophecy, you better be ready for for the finger of God to be able to put that finger to be put on your life and on us and to show us where we need to come back to him. Yeah, because he's the shepherd and he wants us safe inside the fold. It's mm-hmm. not just to make us squirm and feel uncomfortable so we can come back into truth mm-hmm. and be shielded by the protection of his presence. Mm-hmm. Perhaps yeah. his words wound at times, but they heal again. They do. And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 7. I hope you're there, Daniel chapter 7. And uh, this dream that he has, I'm going to begin in the first verse, and I don't think I have the first verse on the screen. There is an artist's rendition of what's coming here as I read the words. There's four beasts. Now, the number four should send off signals in your mind already because in the first prophecy in the book of Daniel, there was how many medals in the statue? Four. So, yeah, you're right. There's parallels between the four medals and the four beasts. Actually, we're going to read right away in here, or or in the interpretation, that the beast represents a kingdom. Let's read it. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and the visions of his head were on his bed, and then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Interesting scenario. They didn't come out of the zoo, but these four beasts, where did they come out of? The sea. All right. Now, the, the Bible prophecy is giving, given in symbols. So I could hand out pieces of paper just like anybody could. We could all guess on what these various symbols coming are going to mean. But should we interpret the Bible according to our own private interpretation? No. It's very important to interpret the Bible the way it does. And I'm glad that's why it comes down to verse 17. And it says, those great beasts, which are four, are four what? Kings, Kings, which arise out of the earth or kingdoms. Kings in in this uh, thought represented their their kingdoms. Now, why did they arise up out of the earth? Uh, Revelation also shines light on... The symbols being used here. Now you mean the sea, Brother Joe. Yes, the sea. Thank you. There is another beast that comes up out of the earth. And uh, my, my clicker is, is going Move to, to another part of the stage and let's see if it works. <laughs> Maybe if I get closer to you. Ah. No. I'm, I'm going to need this uh, verse coming up. That wasn't me. No. That was them up there. You were watching up there. <laughs> but just... I am getting it to work, all right? Uh-huh. You watched up Let's there. Let's trade places. Timed that you well. stand on that side. <laughs> Making yourself look real good there. All right. Revelation 17, 15 talks about what the waters represent. It says, the waters which you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the waters represent lots of what? People. People. Multitudes. And um, we can come to other places where there will be a sea coming out of the earth. Sometime we, we will study. Now, this first beast that comes up is a lion in Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to read about the description of all four of these beasts because we're going to skip forward to the most important part. But I'll read the one of the lion. He says uh, in verse 4, The first was like a lion, Daniel 7 and verse 4. He had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. It's not the first time that the lion was used to represent Babylon. Jeremiah used a lion to represent Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7. 
Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 13, the lion has wings, just like it would in Daniel chapter 7. So the Bible itself, clearly from the text, identifies the first beast from Daniel chapter 7 as Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 4 is talking about Babylon. You know, when I was studying this years ago, I just opened up the World Book Encyclopedia and went to a winged lion. And not that we're going to make World Book Encyclopedia the authority, but these things are very easily anchored down as symbols that represented that kingdom. Yeah, so there we have it right there um, in a museum. Babylon itself used this type of symbol for their own kingdom. So it was language that they themselves were very familiar with. Now, the first kingdom in the metal image was also Babylon. So as you might expect, the same three kingdoms that followed with the metal image in chapter 2 are going to be the same three kingdoms that follow in chapter 7 with the next three beasts. So there was Babylon that had a kingdom around Mesopotamia. And as we've learned before... They did not last forever, although Nebuchadnezzar would have liked that. Medo-Persia conquered and followed them. This, uh, the second beast in Daniel 7 was a bear, humped up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Persia was stronger than Media. Uh, they were very powerful. They had very large armies. Alexander the Great may have been uh, challenged by that. His armies were much smaller, but his were faster and uh, in the Battle of Arbella and others, even though the armies of Greece were smaller, they conquered Medo-Persia. Many, many times smaller. So it's not surprising when you come, of course, this is given in advance of all this. The next uh, animal in Daniel chapter 7, rather than being a big, powerful bear, is a leopard or a cheetah. What are they known for? Speed. Fleet of foot. Yeah, Alexander the Great. I forget the numbers. I didn't review them this afternoon, how fast he went to India and back. But by the time he was 33, my age, he had conquered India and back, Egypt and up north to Greece and throughout the the Middle East. Made it his kingdom and overthrew me to Persia. He could lay back and just feast and fellowship, and so he dies of alcohol poisoning as a young man. Tragic story. The leopard had four heads and four wings. It's well known for those that study Greek uh, history that it was divided after Alexander the Great into four uh, kingdoms. The Greek kingdom. The Greek kingdom. It was divided into four ways between the four uh, generals. Ptolemy and Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus. We'll learn more about those in the Daniel 11 weekend. Um... And then there was another fourth kingdom, and this one uh, Daniel was most concerned about. In fact, as you read Daniel chapter 7, he faints at the end, or he's, he's, he's sick, and he's very concerned and distressed about what he learns from this dream. So if you leave concerned and distressed to join the prophet... Uh, prophecy does that sometimes, but he's most concerned about this fourth beast... And the little horn that grows out of it, which of course is what we're focusing on too. And so this fourth beast, you can look at it in the next verse. This is the chart that reviews those four that parallel the four kingdoms from Daniel chapter 2, the four beasts from Daniel chapter 7. And we've talked about each one of those and their time periods. So we went from iron legs to iron teeth. A little bit of iron sticks in that beast. Yeah. And he's, he's able to destroy everything in his path. Mm-hmm. So the, the detail about the time of the end is growing. Uh, we learned Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. But in this one, we see Greece divides. It has four heads after Alexander's gone. And we see the iron still in this one, but we see it as a devastating power. It's not just a power that is, you know, super strong, but it's, it's, it's a desolating power. Mm-hmm. I like it when Bible teachers call it repeat and enlarge. So we're getting more detail than we got from the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. It's covering similar ground, but adding more detail. And it's going to be that way through the rest of the book. That is true. So here's the slide I'm looking for. This has the text on it, and it describes this, this fourth beast. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. What was it? Dreadful and terrible. More than the previous three. 
exceedingly strong. And that was how it described it in chapter 2 also. The iron legs, it says the fourth kingdom was stronger than the previous. So the, the adjectives and the descriptions from between the two chapters are paralleling as well. The rest of the verse says it had huge iron teeth, which Pastor Ron just uh, spoke of. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts which were before it. And it had how many horns? Ten, Ten horns. horns. Now, this beast seems to be aggressive. It is. And its aggression is uniquely different. Cyrus, as a Median, with the Median Persian kingdom, would actually restore Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But this kingdom here ends up being a representation of one that persecutes God's true church. Mm-hmm. It was a persecuting power. It was the persecuting power during Jesus' time. It was because of Rome, a Roman ruler, that he, him and his family, when he was only a baby, fled to Egypt, destroying the babies Herod did under two years old in that region. It was Roman soldiers that put Jesus on the cross at the suggestion of the Jews, but they were under Roman leadership. And the final voice was theirs. They could have said, no, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. But Pilate was weak. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was the power of the Roman, the pagan Roman Empire that persecuted the church during the first three centuries, which is very famous to many Christians. We, hate, we see a lot of paintings and a lot of stories about the persecution of the Roman, import, uh, Roman emperors towards the early church in the first three centuries. The problem with this uh, prophecy that we're going to see tonight is it's going to adjust some historical interpretations for us, and it is going to shine a true light on history, showing that those first three centuries of persecution on the early church were not the worst part. It got worse as it went on. You know, I've actually been to the Colosseum in Rome more than once and actually had a uh, tour guide tell me once that all of that was made-up history. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there is an effort to uh, cover up and rewrite yeah, among is. some, isn't there? Mm-hmm. But uh, if, if you study and you look, it can't all be hidden. Well, you're exactly right. <clears throat> well, the, the real power that comes into focus in this chapter is this little horn that comes up. He says in verse 8 that, well, I've got it on the screen too. I was considering the horns and there was another one, a little one coming up among them. Um, it's kind of unique because it's little, but it seems to be stronger than all the rest. And uh, that contradiction kind of comes to light and makes sense as we go along. It is a little horn, but it is powerful. It uproots three of the other ten. Now, when Rome was divided in 476, it wasn't overthrown by an empire. It decayed, it crumbled, borders developed, and it divided ten plus ways. And I have some of these... um, 10 tribes on the screen here. I say 10 plus because as Europe developed, there's over 25 countries now, but there's primarily 10 when it first uh, divided. The Vandals in North Africa were destroyed by uh, Justinian. The Heruli had already been destroyed at that point, and then Justinian went up into Italy and destroyed the Ostrogoths. Justinian took away all... This is in the year 538 when the Justinian Code was was developed, didn't just happen in one year, but when it was enacted, and Justinian, mm, he persecuted many different religious groups, pagans, um, different uh, philosophies, he burned down the library in Athens, but the group that he persecuted the most, according to any historian you'll read, is the Arians, the Christians, and so now we have Christians persecuting Christians terrible, terrible thing. And that began in the 6th century. This little horn does have a disproportionate amount of power. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the enigma or the anomaly. It's it's unique that one little power could sway so much. And we're going to see that develop through Bible prophecy. It's little, but exceptionally powerful. I already mentioned Justinian's name. I I have a little bit in my mind because I wrote a paper about him one time a couple years ago. But uh, yeah, you had to be you had to be part of the church to be a citizen in Rome at that time. And um, you had to confess the faith uh, to be able to own property. And uh, people, families were stripped of everything if they didn't go along with So the in the five, 500s A.D.? 500s A.D. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's right. So 
All right, so what I'm putting here on the screen here is going to be some clues of, to help us identify this, this little horn power. Um, the, care, the, the spirit of the little horn goes beyond the little horn, but it is an actual power. Um, right here, well, let me stick with the ones that are on the screen in the order that I have them. Um, these ten horns that arise out of this, this beast cover the area of the former Roman Empire, known today as Europe. And out of that area comes this little horn. The three that were uprooted were from that area. And it would come out of the beast that represented Rome. The little horn did proceed out of, of Rome. You won't expect it to come out of Asia or Australia or another part of the world. Not, not the little horn power itself. It's going to come out of the former Roman And Empire. so horns represent kings and kingdoms as well. And it's actually it prophesied. No, it's all right. It's actually prophesied that this one power would uproot those others. So those 10 you put up, the three being destroyed is actually prophesied. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Centuries, well, in this case, a millennium in advance. This shows a lot about the foreknowledge of God. He saw it. Yeah. He told Daniel... And he's telling us. You know, prophecy also has two purposes, maybe more, but two primary, that, that it shows us the future. But, you know, for us living in the end of the world, prophecy also gives us a proper interpretation on history. And that also is very important, that we have a proper interpretation on what's happened in this world. So either the biggest fraud that Bible is, or the most amazing book inspired as it yeah, and we can each decide for ourselves. We have to decide. God it appeals to our mind and our hearts both. Yeah. Amen. So uh, I'm going to go through some of these rather quickly. We've got a little bit of data to cover here. Uh, the horn is, each horn in this prophecy represents a kingdom. You know, it says in verse 24, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise out of the earth. So this horn, it's not just one person in some neighborhood. It's not just one church. It's a political uh, power contender. Uh, this, this little horn gains power after 476. The reason I have that year up there is 476 is the official year, if there's to be official year, not that it all happened at once. It was a, a little bit of a process, but when the former Roman Empire fell apart and decayed, after the division went from a beast that united all of Europe to ten horns where there was all kinds of borders, then this little horn power becomes noticeable. So it's a little hard when, a, when an empire decays. It's not like it's a punctiliar event that just happened in one moment. But different historians feel all right that this is about the right time that you can say the empire's gone. Yeah, it's like the year 1776 yeah. when we started America. But yeah, there was a lot, was a lot of foment for rebellion mm-hmm. and a lot of working with the Sons of Liberty. And finally, there's kind of a moment when you say, this is, this is when it moves. Yep. All right. Now, something else we know from this, um, from this prophecy is this is a very strong political power because it's not only a horn that's a political power, but it uproots three others. So it's a very uh, powerful, with its armies or its alliances, able to overthrow others. But now this is where it gets a little interesting, because I think this is one time in my presentation where I flash forward to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, rather than focusing on the medieval church shows some ways that the history is going to be repeated in the last days. And it points forward to a time when it was granted to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Actually, I I may have spoke a little bit out of line because Revelation 13 speaks of the 1260 years. So it speaks of the medieval time as well. But it shows that there would be a time where it's revived. And it's a power where every tribe, tongue, and nation is somehow giving acknowledgement to its authority. All right, and so I just want to mention, when we see later in these chapters here how the judgment was set and uh, the description of Jesus, the one who takes the throne in Daniel, is almost identical to the description of Jesus in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Because when we're moving between Daniel and Revelation, we're moving between 
a, a prophecy in Daniel that keeps getting more detailed as you go farther into the book. And then, of course, since it's covering through to the time of the end, we're expecting John the Revelator to have similar uh, developments of understanding. What Daniel gave us in broader outline, which is getting more detailed as we go through the book, John's going to cover the same stuff. So when we see one like the Son of Days, uh, you know, the Son of Man, uh, and he's got the same color of hair and the burnished feet and all of that. So these two books are together in describing similar events. Yeah, they're side by side, which is if you chart the parallels, you see one right after another. And Revelation continues to expand and enlarge what Daniel's given. So we're starting here and we'll go farther in Revelation 13 again in this series that we're doing. All right, now one of the important things, do I have this on the screen where it says the blasphemous power? The text, it says in, in Daniel 7 verse Verse 8, it has a mouth speaking great things. And this is repeated, I think, three times in Daniel chapter 7, because once the interpretation is given later, he says he has this mouth speaking pompous words. That's again in verse, verse 20. And then again in verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. What does he mean about pompous? Is it just against other powers, uh, political powers? It's against the Most High. It's religious words. And so then John's the one that actually used the word blasphemy in Revelation 13 because they're words against the Most High. The dictionary is not wrong when it defines blasphemy as the act of claiming for oneself the attributes and rights of God. How does the Bible define blasphemy? There's some examples of it. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 7, this is an encounter. This is a clash between the Pharisees and Jesus. And they accuse Jesus of committing blasphemy. Why? It says, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the reason that Jesus could forgive sins is because he was God. But when a man does it, then that that would be blasphemy. They were not wrong at that time. So we've got a lot of infighting in our government right now, but I haven't heard anybody accuse each other of blasphemy. It's a religious term. So we see this, this little horn has a lot of power, either in military might or alliances, and, uh, but it also is very religious. It's very deeply religious. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the apostasy, that word, you know, uh, where you're referencing to Judah, this power actually is, is on the inside with reputation, at least, with Christianity. It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. John chapter 10, verse 33 says... Speaking to Jesus, they're challenging him again. Same thing all over. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus is the one that could do it because he was God. But for any one of us to take the prerogatives of God would be blasphemy. Now, this power, it will also be a universal religious power. You kind of just spoke of that right here. It's going blasphemy as a religious uh, word. So it won't be just political, it will be also religious. So we see right here. The word all worship. worship. Were you using this already in Jesus' on yeah, prophecy? Yeah, that's right. And it's all who dwell on the earth. Okay. So you see that global dynamic global. you're talking about. Okay. All right. And it's going to become even more global as we approach well, the end of time. Well, we see this global dialogue mm-hmm. developing even as we go. I mean, the world's starting to recognize that no one country can be able to solve the world's problems because mm-hmm. your pollution blows over into my country mm-hmm. and your carbon, your carbon uh, deliverance into the atmosphere is, if you don't stop yours, me stopping mine might be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Now, the other clue here is that the little horn is a persecuting power. He... He, uh, John says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Making war against the saints, it persecutes them. Uh, yeah, I have verse 25 as well. He persecutes the saints of the Most High. Saints shall be given into his time for a time, times, and a half a times. Now, the time period of this persecution is also spoken of. And you notice I put 1260 years instead of days. Pastor Ron has already spoken of in in Jesus on prophecy, the day for the year principle and prophecy. Uh, The word time we're not used to. Time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half times. 
Now, when you go to Revelation, it will use 1260 days. That's because in the Jewish calendar, there was 360 days to a year. In Revelation 11, it would use 42 months. All of these are the same time periods. 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days is all the same. But if we, if we divide it into days, it's 1260. Now, don't be surprised, folks, when a beast is, is symbolic, a horn is symbolic, that a day is also symbolic. And a day represents a year. You really get the idea that uh, God wants this time period nailed down when he'll describe it three different ways. 42 mm -hmm. months, 1260 mm -hmm. days, or a time, time and a half time. So mm -hmm. all of the images uh, of time that you could garner out of the Hebrew economy or the Hebrew experience and the Bible, it's like God's saying, if you don't get this one, get this one. If you're wondering about those two, here's a third one. Mm -hmm. So that period of time is very significant. It is very significant because... Many people believe that this uh, power is just one that's there for a few months at the end of the age after the church is raptured away in the dispensational theology. And therefore, you really don't even have to worry about what we're studying because we're going to be raptured away. It's going to happen in a little blip afterwards. Whereas, and that totally neutralizes the warning God's tried to give exactly. us the whole time. And where you're going tonight with this dialogue is where all of the Protestant reformers have found themselves with a simple understanding of the Bible where the Bible defines its own terms. But I have a message coming up on a Sabbath morning on this dispensational teaching, which takes and, and robs the Bible of its ability to define its own terms. So you're right, this secret rapture, this idea that there's seven years after the rapture, and during that time the Antichrist shows up and all that, it's a major distraction from the real truth of the Bible, which is anchored in time. Mm -hmm. And God wants us to know. He does know the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want us missing this. Well, folks, what we're studying tonight is uh, very important. The handout is so that you can continue to study it on your own. If, if this is new to you, if when you come back to the Sabbath school on this Saturday morning, uh, we go deeper into this topic. Um, and we can post these next this few, online yeah, for we'll people that, that are watching. Mm -hmm. These next 15 minutes are going to be a little bit of a... You have to buckle your seatbelt a little bit because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some quotes up here showing how this played out in history uh, through the medieval church. So, and we'll review, review this at some point in time in the future as well, aside from just this Sabbath morning. Sure. Yeah. So clue number one, to see how it played out, the, the ones that inherited the palaces, the throne of the Caesars of Rome became the pontiffs in Rome. There's St. Peter's Basilica. That which was formerly a political power, actually, during the, during the Empire of Rome, they were married with paganism. But then it became married with Christianity and uh, became a very interesting mixture. But the very location in the city of Rome, which was significant for so many thousands of years, is still politically and religiously significant, that very city today. Uh, it is a kingdom. Is it a kingdom and a nation? Uh, yes. Uh, the Vatican, you know, if you saw the, the pictures, I should have put them up here, from the funeral of Pope John Paul II, had more ambassadors, kings, presidents, from around the world than any other event in history. It belongs in the Guinness Book of World's Records. It is a political power and also a church. Uh, does it rise to power after 476? Now, I'm not implicating here uh, uh, everybody connected uh, with Rome, but we're talking about an influence that has emanated, that has shaded the character of God in ways that Pastor Ron's already put his finger on. You did a night on the teaching of hell, didn't you? Yeah, you can't buy your way out of hell or purgatory or anywhere else like that. Salvation's free. Yeah. I mean, and these burning are, forever? Burning forever is the greatest uh, blasphemy in my, in my understanding of biblical theology. The idea that someone would teach that you would burn forever. We saw that Augustine was the, uh, he wasn't the one that started the doctrine, but he popularized it. And from there, how many theologians took off and ran with what he believed. And uh, the, the unfortunate thing here is that what you're showing us is that whether it was Judas in the beginning, a betrayal of truth leads to abuses of, 
of power over those who want to exercise their free Christian conscience and right to choose, and it also leads to an aberration or a smearing of the character of God. So should we be surprised, folks, if, you, if you're familiar at all with world history, philosophy history, church history, and political history, when the Enlightenment comes out of France and England and other places, that part of the Enlightenment, the intellectualism of the age, was a major reaction against the abuses of the church, the, the fear-mongering of, the, of eternally burning hell. Uh, didn't you just talk to somebody who had been appealed to to pay uh, their not, way for one of their Not that relatives? long ago. I was talking with somebody, and mm. there was a recommendation that if they made a donation, they could shorten the time that their relative was in purgatory. So unfortunately, a lot of Enlightenism uh, became in, intertwined with atheism. So the political reaction when this 1260 years is over, is things like the French Revolution, there is no God, all of these things. Because Total the, church, mockery of the church had for so long stepped on everybody and everything. It's a, it's a sad history. Um, he's the true witness. God puts his, his finger on it. If we allow him to, he'll put our finger on us today. And... Let's keep going. It shows what, what happens. Uh, third clue, did it rise to power after 476? He says, I was considering there the horns, and there was another one, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. There's some of the list, which I already showed, of the different uh, kingdoms, divisions in Europe. The papacy's power... I'm going to read some quotes kind of quick. We're just going to go through them here. You can see the the uh, book pages titles at the top I won't read them with all the authors but they're all reputable historians the papacy's power and they're not by anyone associated with this church no (laughs) these are not Seventh-day Adventist historians these are world historians with all kinds of other connections the papacy's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 AD due to a letter of the Roman Emperor Justinian known as Justinian's Decree which set up and acknowledged the bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches. It gave the papacy political power as well as ecclesiastical power. And there was a great marriage between the two. This letter became part of the Justinian Code, the fundamental law of the empire, and that year Pope Vigilius ascended the throne under the military protection of Belisarius. Oh, it is very interesting history. And um, say a lot more about it. But the Justinian Code became the basis of all law in Europe for a thousand years. And uh, in there, there was no religious freedom. Uh, Was it a strong political power? We've already spoken to that. The church in the medieval Europe had control of the courts, the palaces, the universities, the libraries, the hospitals. Nothing was withheld from them. It was dominant. Um, I read a historian said one-third of the land in Germany was owned by the church, property, everything. It was dominant. <clears throat> was it a blaspheming power? I have some quotes here. I already read these verses. I don't know why I have them twice in here. Uh, but blasphemy is identified, as we already read, as uh, claiming to forgive sins. I tell you, it's, it's the things that should only be spoken to God. When a man comes down and stands in the way where only God is. And this is shading the character of God because it's removing God where God's too far away and the Father is too mysterious. And even Jesus to pray to. And so you pray to saints, which can't help us. And you ask forgiveness from a priest, which can't forgive you. That's shading the character of God. Well, taking the place of Jesus, which is really what's at the heart here. Christ came so that we could have a straight access to the Father. And getting in the way of that privilege of God knowing us, understanding us, even when we can't talk, is a great blasphemy. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to read this whole quote here, but to summarize it, he's claiming that when the priest pronounces the words over the host over the over the the communion over the the communion bread and the communion wine. And claims that through those words is the same creative power as in the beginning when God spoke the words, let there be light. And the words of the priest have the creative power of God. To turn the bread into the actual body of Jesus and the fruit of the vine into the actual blood of Jesus. It's Mm -hmm. actually a belief called transubstantiation 
that the bread becomes flesh and the wine becomes blood because the priest said so. Yep, and uh, I skipped several slides, but you can catch the last sentence. For the transubstantiation of the bread requires as much power as the creation of the world, emanating from the priest. Now, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, which I opened my Bible there in the beginning and read a little bit, he says that this power who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, once you read the, the quotes from not only the medieval popes, but the medieval concepts come a little bit closer to our age than is comfortable. And uh, this one is a medieval, and then I'll have some other popes here more recently. We, moreover, proclaim, declare, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the Roman pontiff. And there it is that millions were willing to shed their blood. This is a picture, a photograph of a more recent pontiff in the Vatican, uh, Pope Leo the. Uh, 13th in the later 1800s, 1860s, he said, well, this quote's from the 1890, the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds therefore requires together with a perfect accord and the one faith complete submission and obedience of will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. What happened in medieval history, the church and the state united to tell everybody how to think. The results was devastating. Well, the church how is, to act, is how to live, not embarrassed else. to state that the Pope holds the place of God Almighty. I mean, these quotes can be put up too. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Said that in 1894. This is our last lesson to you. Receive it, engrave it in your minds, all of you. By God's commandment, salvation is to be found nowhere but in the church. Perhaps that's the most devastating one yet. So this is, this is why. It's not to step on toes, but it's to bring Jesus back to where Jesus is And if we just be. go back to the Bible, it says there's salvation be found in no other name except the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12. Yeah, and so we, we really find ourselves on a collision course with Bible doctrine or church tradition as authority. Last night, I, I actually ordered during Jesus on Prophecy a book uh, about the Roman Catholic Church and fundamental Bible-believing Christians and I just picked a chapter last night to be reading, and the chapter I was reading was an outright attack on the inspiration of the Scriptures. And it was a very uh, unfortunate thing, but uh, for the Church of Rome, there is no sense that those are inspired except because the Church says they are. Mm-hmm. Not because the Bible has an internal witness that says all Scriptures inspired by God. Yeah, I should have brought here tonight my, my book I have at home by Pope John Paul II, Crossing the Threshold. I don't know if any of you have looked at that, but he says in there, in the first millennium of the church, there is great unity. It's a different kind of unity than what he's thinking of when you look at the history, but he's calling for there to be that kind of unity again. Well, the he's world, calling for a repeat of history. Well, the world will rally, and was. you're not saying that Catholic people are bad or the people inside the Church of Rome are bad, but the doctrine is built on blasphemous teaching. Yeah, it brings a cloud between us and Jesus, and the results are devastating. Mm-hmm. Strong and effective instrument of salvation is none other than the Roman pontificate. That's and of course, this, this selling of salvation is what motivated Luther to stand up and say, that's enough. Well, that's, that's how they were funding the, the building of St. Peter's, Peter's, which is still there today. And that began 500 years ago. Is it a universal religious power? Uh, well, it is a political power, only 109 acres there at the Vatican, but over a billion members around the world connected in one way or another. Its influence far-reaching and matched by none other. Is it a persecuting power? Uh, the church has persecuted, that the church has persecuted, only a Tyrone church history will deny that. Um, I, I don't want to tell you the stories, don't need to, maybe I do because the history's been covered up, but you know, a lot of Americans used to read this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's just a few chapters in the beginning about the empire of Rome, and then it's the church of Rome persecuting other Christians, burning them to the stake, throwing them off steeples, many, many other things. Uh, this was, if you've ever heard of the Inquisition, you can, you can look it up, the Spanish Inquisition and others. This was taken by a friend of mine when they were over there at a museum that recorded property was taken away, families were broken up, imprisoned, killed, and everything else because they refused to partake of mass 
and confess the Catholic faith. Uh, Many of it happened in the dark. Unfortunately, it came across the Atlantic. These pictures here that are coming up next are taken in South America. And South America is a very interesting history. Gabriel Moreno there, shown on the on the left-hand side, the president in the 1860s of Ecuador. There was a concord, and I have it printed right off here between him and Pope Pius IX on September 26, 1862. And because the American Constitution had already been written, which guaranteed religious freedom, there was a great war in South America whether the countries being formed would follow the model of America and grant religious freedom or would follow the old European model of, uh, of religious oppression and dictatorship. And so different countries decided to go different ways. In the Constitution of Ecuador published in, in 1869 or that version of the Constitution, Moreno said you had to be a Roman Catholic to be a citizen of Ecuador. And it was repeated in Article 9 and Article 10 of the Constitution. Now, I have here a, a teacher of church history that is teaching today in a church history university. It says Gabriel Moreno is the, mo, the preeminent, the ideal Catholic statesman of today's age. Yeah, and I want to add something to this. Uh, very recent history as well. I've traveled quite a bit in Central and South America, in Peru. I went to the Museum of the Inquisition in Lima. And one of the first displays they have is called the Auto de Fe, which is the act of faith. And it is a very clear uh, affirmation of the persecution of the Dark Ages in the Inquisition. So uh, I don't want you to think it's ancient history. You would think there might be some apologies about it. But that is not at all in some of these countries... Uh, what is done. There's still such an active support without knowledge to the otherwise. And I was stunned when there was a large display in front of me and it not only had the Spanish, but it had the English translation and it has stuck with me as a painful reality that some of these things by way of mentality have not changed and uh, it's a sad thing. At the same time in the 1860s, now this is the time of the Civil War, so you know where we are in American history, uh, Ecuador, no, uh, Colombia decided to go the other way. They granted religious freedom in their constitution. The Pope wrote a letter and denounced their constitution. He denounced Maximilian in Mexico when he granted religious freedom in Mexico for the first time in 350 years. So uh, the church may, by divine right, this is their own writings, confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. It's not really familiar uh, literature in America because it's not acceptable here. Uh, we, have, we have had religious freedom here. The head of the church and the true and effectual corrector of heretics. That's the Pope. Did he reign for 1260 years? Well, you know, in uh, 1798, uh, the Pope was taken captive. It was the end or a pause on his temporal world, uh, rule. He went into jail because of Berthier, Napoleon's general, and that brought the end to 1260 years of uh, political oppression and oppression of every kind since the Justinian Code was enacted in 538 and the little, the three horns, the Aryan powers that were standing up and blocking them were uprooted in 538. Though it's over a thousand years in between, this is not a little blip in history. And even secular, secular history calls it the Dark Ages. Yeah, you know, isn't it interesting that more recently they try to call it the Middle Ages, but we used to call it the Dark Ages. It's another little adaptation on how we interpret history. The murder... I'm not going to read that. I already told you what happened. And so he entered Rome, 10th of February, 1798, and declared it a republic. Clue number nine, small yet globally influential. Globally influential and uh, only a small piece of property. So that's the review from tonight right there. Proceeds from former Rome, still the city of Rome. It is a kingdom and a nation. It rises to power after 476, at least political power, becomes very strong political power, but it's also religious, it's blaspheming, 
It becomes global in nature. I have the word universal there, persecuting power, especially in the medieval time. Reigns for 1260 years, and it's small yet globally influential. How could God say it any more clearly? Jesus and Pastor Ron, these are my last texts here on the screen. When he spoke here, Matthew 15, verse 3, he says, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? There is a conflict in church history between the salvation that Jesus offered and the teachings that he gave versus the traditions that have gotten mixed up with paganism and other things. And Jesus spoke in verse 9, he says, He's weeping over his own people. He loved them. He was there for three and a half years calling to them. He, he, he was speaking to the people he was talking to, but he said, in vain they, wor- they do worship me. Not everyone who carries the name of Jesus and under the title of Christianity, not everyone does God accept their worship. He says, in vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrines as doctrines, the commandments of men. And so God knows how to look at the heart. It's what nobody else knows how to do. But he calls to us, Uh, today asking us to bring Jesus back to where he belongs from where he's been obscured so we continue to look at this prophecy and more of this in future nights it shines a pretty strong light on the last battle that is still ahead of us in this world All right, we're going to have our own decisions to make very good so how about if I uh, close this off and have prayer you know folks uh, this is not against any individuals This is against the system of teaching which has lost the primacy of the Bible and the centrality of Jesus. This is where the challenge is at. This is why these things need to be understood. And so this evening, we're appealing to those for whom this is new, that they be honest of heart and look seriously at what the Bible says. Um, Our backgrounds, our interactions cross many faith communities The Bible actually will also look at the confusion of the end, of which the little horn is part, the beast power of Revelation 13, and it along with, and we haven't talked about this yet, but Protestantism itself, the book of Revelation says, will apostatize. And then you'll put in spiritualism, and in this great mix of spiritual confusion, God says he still has a people. So when we come up to Revelation 18.1, God says, come out of Babylon, my people. So there's nothing tonight that's designed to wound more than it has to, but Jesus himself was committed to the truth, even at the pain of emotionally difficult encounters with his own, who loved darkness rather than light. So let's stand, and we're going to pray. We thank you for coming out. We're going to come together again. If you permit me to read something as they stand here, I just want to point out from Daniel 7, that uh, it's not the lion or the bear or the leopard or the dragon that's the hero. The hero is the son of man, which we're going to talk more about. He stands up. In verse 13, I was watching one in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man. There's a picture of him on the screen. He's the one that can come into our hearts tonight. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the one that, that is going to have the last word. Whether it's this thing that is happening in our world or another thing in our life, Jesus is the one that stands up and can have the last word if we give him permission. Let's pray. Father, sober, serious, and solemn, are the division lines that are drawn when we look at what your word says versus perhaps our tradition, our friendships, or our family. I'm praying, Lord, that we would be the kindest, most beautiful people in the world, but completely committed to truth. So I'm asking, Lord, as we keep pressing into some of the details of the book of Daniel and Revelation, we'll let Jesus speak through his word, interpret his symbols, call people to truth and realize, Lord, that the way of Christ leads home and truth liberates. May we be careful how we carry it, who and when we share it. Lord, we're 
many have listened to 14 different sermons on Jesus on prophecy before we came to this moment. So may we be hesitant to share the things we've learned tonight without somebody having a foundation. But they are true, Lord. We've sought to speak them humbly and kindly, but truthfully. Now where the reformers all came to, independent of each other, at least largely independent of each other, we find ourselves again for the Bible clarifies. May our hearts be centered and committed to truth. Thank you for bringing us together here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God be with you. For those who would like to look at it more, we'll have a small class in the committee room, which is the door, last door on your right when you leave, on Sabbath morning at 1030. Have a good evening, and thank you for coming.